Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. uh, Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, uh, A. Greenwald uh, may be able to join us in the middle of the podcast, um, but we've got to go ahead without him. so two big stories today. One is that Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, survived the recall effort uh, against him uh, pretty much uh, in, a, in a blowout uh, landslide. Uh, so what was uh, originally seen as a quixotic effort to use California's bizarre recall provision against the governor, against the guy who had gotten almost 60 percent of the vote uh, in his first uh, election uh, has proved in the end to be as quixotic as it seemed at first. The polling over the uh, summer had somehow suggested that he was really in trouble, and there seemed to be various ideas of what, how he got himself out of trouble. Clearly, everybody in the Democratic Party was worried he was in trouble. There was a huge push on his behalf in the last couple of weeks. Joe Biden was there with him on Monday. And uh, and uh, generally, it appears that uh, when you asked whether you would like to have Gavin Newsom recalled, people this summer fed up with various things said a lot. Enough people said, yeah, sure, to make it really worrisome uh, when the uh, focus of the recall moved to uh, Larry Elder, the um, conservative African-American radio talk show host. And Democrats and Newsom were able to focus it on the idea that there was basically a choice between him and Elder. He got the Democrats, who outnumber Republicans two to one in the state, to turn out in sufficient numbers to comfortably turn back this effort to uh, oust him from office. What are the are there uh, larger political implications? The fact that Newsom survived Newsom survived this recall. My first instincts are yes and no. <laughs> so um, yes, so there are and there aren't. There are and there aren't. Um, <clears throat> is this a broader indication of how Republicans will perform in 2022? No, and I don't think anybody should make that kind of extrapolation. Um, there will be temptations to do that. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I think it's pretty much a, a localized case. Yeah, is this a, was this a referendum on COVID, you know, uh, mitigation measures and how the general public perceives them? No, I don't think so. Even though I think this election probably turned a lot on that issue. Um, that's more California oriented than otherwise. But I don't know if there's no implications here. Um, in part because the, <clears throat> and I think rather defensively, the narrative in in major news media outlets has turned on the notion that um, Gavin Newsom didn't necessarily save himself, but was saved by Larry Elder being a bad candidate. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's true. I think Larry Elder performed reasonably well as a candidate. However, there is something to be said for the fact that as somebody with, as, as a talk radio show host who did a talk radio show for 20 years, um, with a voluminous record of statements uh, associated with that vocation. You, know, you talk about everything all day long and say whatever comes to mind. Uh, he was a trove of uh, comments that made him easily polarized uh, and, and a figure that could be uh, 
all the context could be removed from his remarks. So there were more than a handful of news cycles that weren't favor favorable to him based on what he had said in the past. Um, and there was uh, a question on the exit polling that I think is, is relevant here. When asked, um, how did you vote in the election for governor if Gavin Newsom is removed from office was the second question. The first question is, should Gavin Newsom be removed from office? Yes, no. Second question, how would you vote? And the exit uh, polling suggested that while well, Larry Elder got 49% of the of the vote total and 97% of people who voted yes, he, Gavin Newsom should be removed, also voted for Larry Elder. 56% uh, of people who voted no voted for Kevin Falconer, who's San Diego's former mayor, the more establishmentarian candidate, um, a much more boring candidate from the perspective of culturally oriented Republicans. So the thesis that I'm leaning towards, and it's, I don't think it's hundred percent really well supported, but it is nevertheless, there are some indications towards it. And I'm going to explore it later today is that Republicans might've done a lot better in this race. Had they picked a boring, normal quote unquote, Republican managerial figure rather than somebody who's a cultural lightning rod who, you know, at, at speaks to the basis instincts, which are you know, entirely cultural and not very political, con conventionally political. Um, and that that's a lesson that Republicans should perhaps internalize moving forward. I think I think that's actually that's such a good point. My sister has been a California resident for many decades now, and I, I talk to her a lot about California politics and a, a, a less flamboyantly kind of culture warrior style Republican would have answered what I think for Newsom should still end for all progressive Democrats and particularly those in California should have on their minds now, which is that just because he was able to survive a recall challenge doesn't mean that the structural dissatisfactions that a lot of uh, California residents, including California Democratic voters, have about their state and about Newsom's leadership have disappeared. So I'm talking about housing costs. I'm talking about crime rates. I'm talking about fires. On all those three things, which really are on the minds of Californians, he has failed. He's either pretended to be helpless, even though he has a supermajority in his state Senate of Democrats, or he's kind of done the technocratic elite progressive response to, oh, it's climate change. Well, maybe it's that you cut the firefighting budget because that's what you did as governor. And, and so the out of control fires might also be a result of that. Same thing with housing prices. I mean, I, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it, it's the most one of the most expensive places to try to buy a home in this country. Income inequality in the state is really vast. So there are a lot of these issues that uh, middle class and everyday California voters have on their minds still, even if they kept him for now, the broader democratic progressive message in California is really floundering right now because on the ground, it's not delivering what it's promised to the people. I think what's interesting here is that um, if, obviously, if Newcom, I keep calling him Newcom, I don't know why, uh, Don Newcom, the picture. I think that's that's Freudian, like Newcom, he's gone. No, he's still here. I was thinking more like Don, Don Newcom, who was one of the first Californians I ever heard of. He was a pitcher for the Dodgers when I was a kid. Um, but that, um, obviously, if Newsom had, had lost... Uh, it would be an earthquake, and it would suggest uh, it would suggest that uh, something massive had happened to alter the political trajectory of the country in the wake of COVID that uh, that had gone uh, somewhat unseen, uh, you know, in in blue states. So that didn't happen. So the dog that didn't bark is actually very important, not just in relation to what you guys are saying about uh, Falconer, who was obviously like a serious potential candidate of uh, mayor of the. 
second largest city in, in, in California, I believe. I think San Diego is the second largest city, maybe the third um, serious guy. Uh, but that's not how recalls work, right? This is a populist measure. Uh, it was uh, begun as a, really as a result of a, of a symbolic moment, uh, elite versus regular guy moment when New, Newsom, I was about to say it again, when Newsom was caught at the French Laundry, the most expensive and fanciest restaurant maybe in the United States, uh, unmasked having a party while everybody else in the state was locked down. Um, and so the, 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 the impulse to this was an emotional impulse about the misbehavior of America's elites and therefore wasn't actually going to find a proper focus in the notion that if you, if you found, if you could somehow uh, cohere behind a creditable candidate who could face Newsom on the issues that Christine just laid out, he could actually battle the guy uh, sufficiently so that a bunch of people who might otherwise go, what, what the hell is going on here? Why are we recalling another governor? Might have said, yeah, maybe we should give this guy Falconer a chance. Uh, even though, you know, we're Democrats and he's a Republican. So in that sense, it's important as a corrective against the idea that uh, populist rage uh, is a force strong enough to sweep out people in blue states. Um, and other polling data that are, of course, of interest, uh, which gets to a larger question that we have to face ourselves trying not to live inside the bubble of our own opinion and the people that we are most concerned with is that uh, uh, vaccine mandates and things like that in the exit polling uh, showed up as something that were positive, about which there was a positive. And we have heard from supporters of Biden and people like that, that his proposal for these mandates was something uh, that was a 70% issue in his favor and that Republicans were being nutso to go crazy over vaccine mandates, more than 70% of the population is vaccinated. What, why do they, you know, all things being equal, what do they care whether the minority that is, doesn't want to get vaccinated doesn't want to get vaccinated? In fact, they might care more that they aren't if they went to the inconvenience and even the psychic fear of doing it if they weren't comforted by the thought of the vaccine, but they did it anyway. And here are these other people doing it. And I think we need to take that pretty seriously. Like, I don't think that you could just say, okay, well, Democrats are for mandates and Republicans aren't and all of that. I think that, I don't think that Biden can make a stake a plausible claim that he will be helped by pushing vaccine mandates because they're wildly popular. I think that the Republican and conservative contention or belief that vaccine mandates are going to form a, um, you know, a kind of, or the, or these rules are going to form some kind of a, an accelerant to um, uh, populist success in 2022 needs now to be looked at very carefully because that's where Noah loves this analogy. That's where the vaccine mandates might be the caravans of 2018 in reverse for Republicans. In other words, like Trump, used this populist issue thinking that it was going to save his party from disaster in 2018, and they didn't. Republicans seem to think that these mandates might be an accelerant to help them in their effort to take the House and maybe retake the Senate. 
And I think they need to look very cautiously now at that as a winning issue for them and maybe soft pedal it because it may stimulate as many people to vote against Republicans as it might stimulate Republicans to drag themselves over, uh, you know, over broken glass to get to the polls next year. Well, I think it's such a good point because there's a way to talk about government overreach with the mandate that would be in a broader context of what I think a lot of voters and not just Republican voters, but independent and moderate minded Democrats want to hear from some of these leaders, Newsom included. And that's about the sort of breakdown of the social contract, the feeling that a lot of people have, and they're not even... Trump voting populist people, but regular people have that the government isn't working. It's not doing what it says it should. The people who lead it are, are profiting off of it and lining their own pockets and doing their own thing without regard to the people's actual needs. They're in the bed of special interests, whether those are teachers unions or businesses, whatever it is. There is a general dissatisfaction with the way that, that our social contract is working right now between citizens and, and government at, at the at, particularly at the federal level, but at the state level, as as California shows. So there's a way, I think, for conservatives and Republicans to talk about federal government overreach and mistrust of that overreach within that broader context. I'm not sure they're going to manage to do it, but I agree, John. I think there could be quite a backlash if they decide to make it all about the vaccine mandate. Um, Because, as you said, are popular. The vaccines are popular. People just want things to end and go back to normal, too. So that's another factor. But somehow we've gotten into a phase and it's partially this being, you know, very online and being somebody who watches, being the sort of people, not us, I mean, the chattering classes, like who watch these things on an hourly by an hour by hour basis. 76% of the country over the age of 18 is vaccinated now, has gotten at least one shot. The vaccines are popular, not unpopular. And I think a lot of Republicans seem to have talked themselves, even the ones who are vaccinated, into the idea that this is some kind of a popularity lever. And that is a misunderstanding. Like I said, I don't think people are going to vote on it as a primary issue. It's even possible that the people who vote on a primary issue would be anti-vaxxers or people who are suspicious of the vaccine or even people who are suspicious of Biden's executive overreach. That may be the case. But the fact is that it's 76-24 right now. By the time the election rolls around, chances are good that more than 80% of the country will, in fact, have been vaccinated. The idea that this is going to be a winning issue for Republicans is demented. Again, executive overreach is a different thing. And I think, Christine, you went to that very carefully and cautiously. (laughs) And it's the right way to look at it, which is, Biden is saying and doing things where he says, I don't even know if I'm allowed to do this, but I'm doing it anyway. And uh, that is something that may make people uncomfortable. Now, the problem is that he is now the third president in a row to say this. So it may now be the new normal, the idea that you're going to punish Biden for saying, I'm not allowed to do this, but I'm doing it anyway, because screw those other guys. Obama did it. Trump did it. Biden does it. That's now 13 years of people doing this, or 12 yeah, but, years but of see, people doing this. Everybody was sort of surprised when Obama did it and he got away with it. Every A lot of voters didn't like how Trump went about it and Biden was elected to roll that back. That's, I think, where right. his overreach is a political mistake. Yeah, I, I would contend that none of them got away with it. <laughs> Obama didn't get away with DACA. Donald Trump didn't get away with the travel ban. Joe Biden didn't get away with the eviction moratorium. I'd be very surprised if he gets away with this uh, vaccine mandate. I think right. it's, a, it's it's contravenes the Constitution in ways that are unacceptable. And yet, that's wrong. So say it's wrong. 
I don't really care whether it's popular or not. That's my job. I don't have to get elected. No, I'm not talking about. So you're exactly right. What what I'm saying, you're both right, and 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 uh, that was a really wonderfully succinct way of 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 responding. Noah, right? These things, these overreaches, are 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 struck down by the courts. Doesn't mean that the Overton window wasn't moved so that it is acceptable for a president now to do something that he himself says is patently unconstitutional. I mean, uh, not to not to get like all, you know, goo-goo about this, but, um, you know, somebody saying, I, I this is unconstitutional and I'm going to do it, would once have been grounds right there for impeachment. Like that is, you, t- you swear an oath to uphold the Constitution. You say in an interview, I can't do DACA because it's unconstitutional. And then you say, I'm doing it anyway. You know, uh, you know, in a in a more serious time or something like that, like that, that would have been we would have. And in fact, and a lot of people did say this is you're breaking new ground in in executive overreach. And this is pretty horrifying. And yet here we are now. Uh, and uh, clearly, I think every every president is going to have this arrow in his quiver uh, because um, it, it is incredibly seductive. Uh, to calm your base down by saying, I'm doing this even though I know it's wrong, to satisfy you. That's how much I love you. I love you so much that I am going to betray my oath of office in pursuit of fealty to you people. That is new. I mean, it's new, and maybe maybe it'll be reversed, and you know, then and what's more, maybe it's fan service. Democracy is fan service. and maybe they do it with the understanding that they're going to be saved from the consequences of their actions by the court. So once again, we have a situation in which now the uh, Congress has been doing this forever. Just to be fair, Congress passes legislation with the hope that the, you know, sometimes that the courts are going to rein in the worst parts of what we just did, you know, it's like, this will go, it'll be, it'll be litigated. And look, if this provision is thrown out, the rest of it'll still stand, right? I mean, that's the whole, I understand this is a complicated question. So let the, let the, let the Solons, the unelected people over here, figure it all out. They weren't supposed to do that either. And they clearly have set the standard by which you know, by which the executive branch now believes that it has the uh, right or or somehow the political right to behave this way. Uh, but, you know, uh, navigating that minefield or threading that needle uh, is a matter of deep political sophistication and clever messaging and everybody being on, you know, one being on the same page, right, which is partially what Noah was talking about in relation to California and how it was sort of all over the map and how, wh- why, why was he being recalled, right? Like it was all over the map. Um, in 2003, Gray Davis was recalled for very simple reasons, which is that people couldn't run their air conditioners in the summer. Like there were brownouts, they were literally managing brownouts, legally mandated blackouts of people during the day like they were living in you know zambia and the and the generator in the village kept going out and people were like we live in california it's not supposed to be like this and that was very simple it was like very simple and practical like what on earth is going on i live in a first world country in the state that was the future of america 
and like at four o'clock in the afternoon, I don't have electricity for three hours. But that is still an issue. Like that's still a problem in California. They still have grid blackouts and they have had them leading up to this election. I mean, that's not a problem that was right. solved. And I do but think it's notable. They focus on, on that on issue. Yes. And, yes. And there was a candidate. There was a candidate that was who was interesting and, and unusual and clever. And there were hostile candidates to Gray Davis, to the Democrat, on the ballot in the recall. So there was, there were, if you were a Democrat and you wanted to vote again and, and you were mad at Gray Davis, you actually had a place to go other than Schwarzenegger, but you could vote for the recall. And right. That, that didn't really gel. Um, but, but uh, you know, I'm just saying that the, if the Republicans need to focus on executive overreach or Biden turning into, they need to do it well. And I don't see that this party is does anything particularly well, uh, because there'll always be Marjorie Taylor Greene there comparing Biden to, you know, Hitler or Thanos or something like that. And then you'll have this, you know, and whatever. And then you'll have Lauren Boebert shooting a picture of Biden with a gun and and everything will just go haywire. You know, but um, I'm just saying, like, this is a corrective moment. This is a good uh, career. This is a good moment for people who are looking both to inhibit uh, the Democratic march toward billions of dollars of trillions of dollars of new spending and all of that to to um, splash cold water on their face and then look anew at how it is that they need to proceed here. Okay. with that, let me talk to you guys about our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group and his two newsletters, um, the uh, uh, dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. David is interesting in many ways, and his perspective is interesting in many ways. He is now uh, one of the leading voices in America on the question of the long-term consequences of inflation. It has now become... um, I think axiomatic among in the entire chattering class that uh, inflation poses a huge risk to Joe Biden. Uh, uh, David views the long-term risk to the United States as being deflationary following the Japanese example of the late 80s and early 90s. And he lays it out very carefully and, and deliberately. It doesn't mean that month by month the inflation numbers in the United States might not be worrisome. But he brings a different perspective. It's very important to hear it, listen to it, take it in, and see whether, just like I'm talking about correctives to conventional wisdom uh, when we were talking about the recalls and all that, uh, it is important to have your views of this challenged in this way. Go to the dctoday.com. Go to dividendcafe.com to subscribe to the Bonson Group's newsletters. That's the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Noah, um, can you, uh, so the, so we have now have the leak, the big leak from the Woodward, the new book by Bob Woodward and, and, and Robert Costa, which is called, I don't know what it's called, peril, danger, confusion, horror, threat. If anyone can remember a Bob Woodward book specifically by its title, that is kind of amazing. The only one that I remember by aside from all the president's men is wired because that was the one about John Belushi, very uncharacteristic book for him. But every year he now puts out a book with a single word title. I picked up one last year. I picked up one yesterday in Barnes and Noble, which was the last Trump book. 
and I literally cannot remember what one word he used. So I don't know what this book is called. It's the it's the Woodward Costa book about the last the first the last three months of the Trump presidency and the first three months of the Biden presidency. So it's book by Woodward Costa, and it has this one it's big peril. Uh, revelation. Peril. Peril. Okay. Peril. Yeah. That, I'm yes. really. I'm not going to remember it that. Paxil, but it's now. peril. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all need Paxil. And I, you know, remind me in 15 minutes because I'm going to forget that it was peril. Okay. Noah, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley is the subject of this major leak. What, uh, can you enlighten us? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, I want to stress that these are allegations. <clears throat> as much as uh, Mr. Woodward and Mr. Costa are very good reporters, it's their their word and uh well that's probably very little for us to second guess here we shouldn't take it as gospel nevertheless the allegations and there and mark milley is attracting some interesting uh, people on his on his side as it were just saying you know let's cool down like senator uh cotton for you know his own reasons perhaps but the allegations are rather serious um insofar as i'm aware of them they are twofold. Uh, one that the, towards the end of the Trump administration, uh, in combination with Donald Trump's rather hostile rhetoric towards the Chinese and a series of naval exercises in the South China Sea, um, Beijing became nervous to the point that intelligence began to indicate that they were preparing for a preemptive American strike on uh, PLA targets. And uh, General Milley took it upon himself to uh, execute a back-channel conversation with a PLA general with whom he has a, a friendly relationship, and they've you know they've met each other several times. And I came across another piece in the South China Morning Post about how they were touring missile defense sites, and he was you know calming them down about how they don't represent a threat to them. So they have this this personal relationship, and according to their reporting, um, General Milley uh, took it upon himself to reassure the Chinese that there would be no uh, preemptive strike on PRC targets. And in the event that the United States were to um, pursue hostilities against Chinese, that he would give, he'd give them a heads up. Like they would get a, a, a forewarning from him personally that such an attack was imminent. Um, and there are a whole lot of reasons why that's very troubling and uh, ex well beyond his remit, first of all, obviously. It disrupts the chain of command. And also it introduces a whole lot of variables into the very complicated process by which states conduct themselves and by which states uh, measure their threats against them and how they prepare for them and what their geostrategic considerations are and whether or not that actually makes the Chinese more likely to engage in a preemptive strike uh, in order to preserve their capabilities, which are far more vulnerable, yada, yada, yada. The bottom line is... Um, not only was this not within General Milley's purview, but he doesn't seem to have fully considered the geopolitical ramifications um, by introducing this kind of a variable into the way that states assess their own threats. Okay. The so, second allegation. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's let's stop there. Okay. So that is the substantive defense, defense or explanation of what, what Milley did. The Chinese may have misinterpreted things that were going on worried that was something was going to happen. And Milley decided that he needed to make it clear to the Chinese that nothing would happen uh, under his watch 
uh, of a martial or military fashion toward China so China could, could calm down, right? Back channel, don't worry. Okay. Which could have had the perverse um, effect of actually heightening their anxieties. Right. Well, of course, because someone is calling and saying, don't worry, I'm here to make sure that the crazy isn't going to happen from the psychotic in the White House. Um, Means that that's on the table and that yeah, your, your yeah, assets yeah. are vulnerable. The opposite, right. And if you want to preserve them, you, you should engage is, in a preemptive yeah. strike yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm worried about that too, but don't worry, I'm not going to let that happen. Okay, now you're laughing. Um, Joe Biden better fire this guy. I'm sorry. I mean, but that's I not know. even the worst. That's not even the worst thing. I, I mean, know, it's terrible, know, but, but it's know, not even but, the worst know, allegation. But, I know, but we need to. Can I? Can I? Can I just jump in off, and say he is off the chain. He is doing things that cannot be done. This is the sort of thing that regularized. We keep talking about a coup, right? There's maybe there'll be a coup. Trump wants to have a coup and have a coup. This is the kind of preparatory behavior for coup-like actions by people in uniform. They are he is communicating out of channel with a foreign with a potential enemy for to create some kind of a pathway that is not approved by our system with anyone elected in the chain here. He cannot be allowed to stay in office and Biden will be making a gigantic mistake to let him stay in office, even if he did this because he's so wonderful and he's hated Trump and Trump was so terrible and Trump was a threat to democracy. Like, there is no reason for him, if he is not disciplined, there is no reason for him not to say, oh, my God, you know, Joe Biden looks like he's slipping into dementia. I mean, there's 25th, you know, they're not invoking the 25th Amendment on him. I'm not even in the cabinet. I better call the Chinese and tell them, don't worry. You know, what What can we do to make sure that something terrible doesn't happen? Suddenly, well, he's like the dictator of our military policy in the United States. And we, we have in the past been, um, regardless of party, very strict about this sort of thing. I mean, remember General Stanley McChrystal? He was fired by Obama for just joking around to reporters about about things, joking like this wasn't even a serious back channel effort to undermine the chain of command. Fired immediately. Um, the the idea that we should normalize this because, as you say, because this guy happens to be Biden friend, friendly and and uh, hustle to Trump should that's a very bad precedent and and he really should if not resign immediately be forced to. Um, although uh, from what I've seen so far of the coverage of this, there's been no effort to do that. But you knew he was highly ideological the moment he had that outburst in Congress about white nationalism, right, white, white privilege. Right. I mean, yeah. that's that's the sort of thing you don't do, especially to the, the branch, uh, a, a, a branch of government that you're you know, not subservient to, but and nevertheless, you know, beholden to, uh, to have that kind of an ideological outburst. You know, he got a lot of flack for that on the right and deservedly so, because it wasn't within his remit. He believed that his remit was much broader than what his his stripes should have allowed him but you know briefly john i mean you can say what you want to say i don't want to interrupt you but that's this is not the worst allegation go ahead the worst allegation is the following and these are direct quotes according to uh woodward and costa um 
the uh, General Milley, um, according to a transcript of the call that he was on uh, between lawmakers and Democratic lawmakers and and himself, said, quote, the, the president alone can order the use of nuclear weapons, but he doesn't make that decision alone. One person can order it. Several people have to launch it. After which he summoned senior officials within the National Military Command Center to go over the procedures uh, that would relate to a, a nuclear weapon, uh, the use of nuclear weapons. And he told those officers, quote, you do the procedure, you do the process, and I'm part of that procedure. Um, talking about, you know, making sure he was in the loop and assuring lawmakers and assuring the people in his command that the president alone does not command the nuclear arsenal. Now, let's be, you know, cautious about this and clear about this. It is true that the president of the United States commands the nuclear arsenal. It is true that he target selects. It is true that he uh, says, you know, let's, we can execute this strike. And that is his command within him, himself and his person alone. Now, the military is obliged to not follow unlawful orders insofar as that relates to just about anything, including a, a, a presumably a preventative, preemptive nuclear strike, a first strike. You can have a process by which officers would reject that order. But this isn't something that would, it, it, we're talking about extraordinary circumstances already, obviously, so extraordinary that it's hard to even envision them. But the circumstances that would lead to something like that um, would have to be so profoundly extraordinary so as to avoid a literal mutiny um, that it's hard to imagine them. And what General Milley was involved in there was much closer to mutiny than uh, the avoidance of an unlawful order because nothing was on the table. And the president has such profound uh Un, you know, un, unlimited powers of target selection and, and launching that then unlawful order is hard to even envision when it comes to a nuclear strike, with the exception of uh, one on your own territory. I can't even imagine the circumstances that you would say, okay, this is clearly an unlawful strike prohibited by law by the United States Congress. Um, so what General Milley was engaged in, in my view, is, is most certainly qualifies as mutiny. Um, or at the very least, uh, abrogating the chain of command and assuming those responsibilities upon himself, for which he should not only be resigned, um, not only resigned, but be forced out of his position in disgrace. Uh, I mean, of course, the, the, the response to that would be that it, this was all theoretical, not practical. They were talking about a what-if situation and that there was no mutiny because there was no order that was not, that was not followed. So... Um, you know, people have the right to free speech. They have all, you know, it's, it, this is more, this is why I keep talking about Biden here because they're uh, conservatives are going to say, this is terrible, but Trump was president. You can see the deep state was working against him so much that they're willing to collaborate with the Chinese and try to create a mutinous structure so that the president's orders couldn't be followed. I, I'm, I want to depoliticize this a little bit. If I can, I mean, you know, looking at it, assuming that what's been described here is correct, to departisanize de it, to depoliticize it. A general cannot be going around talking to the Chinese behind the back of the president of the United States, and apparently maybe behind the back of the secretary of state. He cannot do that. That is, that is something that that person, that one person, not the entire chain of whatever, that one person has gone rogue. That one person is behaving in a way that threatens our democracy. We're talking about threatening our democracy. You've got the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff making 
unilateral policy with the Chinese, that cannot be allowed. Biden cannot allow that. You know, uh, you know, no, no president can allow that. He's got Milley sitting there, continuing in that job. He has, he can have no faith that Milley will exit, will, will not do this again toward him. Only because Millie didn't like Trump. I'm sorry, we don't know what what's going on, what goes on in Millie's head, and neither should he. And neither should he. To say nothing of the of the self serving vanity of the kinds of leaks, if if Millie himself was indeed you know leaking on background to to Woodward and others, that the vanity of his own positioning there, the way he's telling that story, should give pause to any boss of this general, because as you say, I mean, if he feels he's he alone understands the situation's complexity enough to go behind the back of the commander in chief to reassure, you know, our enemies. And look, let's not let's not uh, pretend that China is not at least a a, uh, a somewhat of an enemy of ours. He the vanity in the comments. I mean, if if Woodward was transcribing them as he claims to be transcribing uh, Millie's thoughts, then then that's actually a sign of a lack of good leadership just in general. Pun intended, I guess. I mean, I think also uh, that um, this is a this is a slower acting story than we realize. Like it just came out last night, um, and um, we we don't know what the longer term you know effects are going to be. Obviously, there is going to be a des- the the Biden people don't want to fire anybody for anything. And they don't want, you know, they certainly don't want to look like they're disciplining somebody who was anti-Trump because their entire approach to things is that they're not Trump and all of that. But um, uh, you, you cannot look at this if you're a serious chief executive and say this isn't um, worrisome. Uh, Millie looks at Trump and. Uh, according to Woodward and Costa, says the president had gone into serious mental decline, was worried that he, the president, might go rogue, okay? I'm just giving you the same example. Biden, he believes Biden is senile, let's say. What does that give him permission to do in his own head? Let's say Biden's not senile, but he thinks he's senile. A lot of people seem to think Biden is senile, uh, would it would not go you know would not be uh, beyond the bounds of possibility possibility that that Milley could develop that opinion. He has already shown a propensity to behave in a way that is not acceptable given the way the structure of the country is. We have already seen this. This is his perception. He thinks Trump has gone into mental decline. We have a president sitting there. A lot of people think he's in mental decline. The guy who runs the Joint Chiefs of Staff cannot be in that position. He should resign and make an announcement that so-and-so is in mental decline or something like that. Our friend Eric Erickson makes the point that, you know, when Jim Mattis thought that that what Trump was doing was insupportable, he resigned and made a public statement about why he was resigning and what was going on that made it no longer possible for him to handle this. Millie could resign and say, I believe that the president is in severe mental decline and is going to create a crisis with the Chinese. I'm making this public to save the country. That is the, that is the respectable, responsible, and parliamentary and whatever thing to do. Yeah, he perceived himself to be so indispensable 
to the future of the Republic and um, <clears throat> the integrity of, of the of American territory and the safety of the United States that he went out and freelanced his own foreign policy, um, which is inexcusable, unacceptable, should be hauled before Congress at a very minimum. I mean, he will uh, be. Explain, he's testifying, he will be, but I mean to explain himself. next week he will be before Congress. And it w- this is why I say uh, the idea that, you know, there hasn't been an immediate, you know, like hysteria, like he is going before Congress and he is going to answer questions about this for many, many, many hours. And God knows what will come out of his mouth. Uh, if the questioning is done uh, appropriately. And as you say, it's not as though, you know, every Republican wants to go for his jugular. Like there are people like Tom Cotton, you know, there are people who obviously respect his career and service and all this, even if they disagree with him politically. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, I will just have to see what happens. And uh, I, might, for one, might be listening to that testimony on my Raycon wireless uh earbuds when it happens next week if i happen to be out and listening on npr or whoever broadcasts it on the radio because uh these earbuds these wireless earbuds are just fantastic they're incredibly good looking they have this sort of rubber oil look and feel they send you six gel tips so that you can find the right one to fit in your ear and be really comfortable uh you can set your sound profile so that there's a lot of bass if you listen to you know reggae and hip-hop like so many of the commentary magazine podcast listeners or you can listen to us in pure mode which is really what is sort of like makes our voices the the clearest there's also balance mode which is kind of somewhere in the middle and the new all new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings instead there's eight hours of playtime 32 hour battery life a built-in mic so you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button, and it's half the price of other premium audio brands, even as they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. So right now, commentary listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash commentary. That's buyraycon.com slash commentary to save 15% on Raycons, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash commentary. Um Let's also talk about this question about Trump uh, that's raised. Now, now let's go move off millions or talk to talk about this notion uh, that Trump had, uh, you know, loosed uh, the, the the bonds of uh, of sanity. Um, uh, I would like more on this that doesn't come from Millie, and I don't know what's going to happen now. But um, part of what we part of what would be helpful as we go forward here politically is to find out whether. Um, people who uh, were around Trump who uh, weren't Millie um, also saw a pronounced decline in his, or perceived a change in his faculties and facilities as a result of the loss in the election. And I think that is important data for Republicans to take into account before they think about 2024. Um, And you know, the question now is, will some of them be honorable? And there is an interesting detail in apparently in the reporting in whatever the book is called, Peril or Paxil or whatever, uh, that uh, Mike Pence called Dan Quayle to ask him what he should do because people are telling him, meaning John Eastman, the discredited uh, 
and intellectually factitious, sophistic, and uh, disgraceful law professor uh, who came up with the idea that that somehow uh, Pence could refuse to accept the uh, electors' ballots. Uh, people are telling him that he could not accept the electors' ballots, and as Quell is the only living person to have had to preside over such a thing because he was the vice president when George H.W. Bush lost and he had to certify the election of uh, the elector count uh, for Bill Clinton. He said, forget it. There's no way. I don't even know what you're talking about. Are you, you know, stop it. I don't know what Pence thinks, where he's going or you know, whether maybe he has a fantasy that he'll somehow end up uh, in a position where he can run for president or do whatever. Um, he really needs to clarify this point and like a, a good person would actually come out and speak honestly and truthfully about what had gone on in the White House in the final three months of the presidency. I know he's scared. I know he's chicken. I don't care. Like this is now a matter of character. Like we're now looking at this possibility of a of a third term of a you know the, a third run and all of that. Uh, if there's reason for people to know that that is something that should be questioned because of faculty questions, somebody needs to come out and 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 either uh, either challenge that completely and 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 convincingly or not because Trump did say a couple of days ago to a crowd that he believes that this year, the 2020 election will be, quote, decertified. He said it would be decertified. There is no such thing as decertification in our system. There is no decertification. If he believes that is true, uh, then uh, questions about his mental acuity, probity, and all that are, are, are pretty serious. And if he doesn't believe it to be true, then then it's just one of these quivers in his arsenal to, you know, arrows in his quiver or whatever that he uses to rile up his base or whatever. Right. If it's true, he's crazy. If it's not true, he's just morally and intellectually bankrupt. Right. But it's pretty much the binary. Um, All this falls within the rubric of the investigation into January 6th. The January 6th commission is live. It has subpoena power. What's stopping them? What's stopping them from subpoenaing the former vice president? Well, we don't know that they won't. I, mean, we, I, I don't know if we... And I don't know I, if they won't by the way, subpoenas sounds like not, you're saying they should, and I certainly agree. They certainly should. I think there are there are a separation of powers issues. Uh, it's, I, I don't really understand how they work in regards to former uh, presidencies and all of that. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Also, I think maybe, again, I'm wrong, but I mean, a lot of that activity can be private. Right. I mean, it's uh, subpoenas are not a public matter. We don't issue uh, press releases saying we just subpoenaed Mike Pence. I mean, I guess if they'd subpoenaed Mike Pence and he well, wanted the testimony to quash the subpoena. Public, the testimony would be a public matter because of its venue. Well, it would be, it would well, be so a different... ongoing national security issue. They testify privately yeah, all the well, we time. I suppose know, they could testify behind about, closed doors. Sure. Are we talking about taking depositions or are we talking about testimony? T- testimony right. is public. Right. Yeah. Or not all testimony is public. Not all like public. Yeah, not all, he could be deposed privately. Sure. And he could testify privately, I suppose. Yeah. Sure. I mean, the 9-11 was... commission heard a lot of stuff that was That's not the point I'm trying to make, okay. John, yes. is if John. this was a bipartisan blue ribbon commission that had nothing to do with Congress, 
which is the sort of thing that Republicans had the opportunity to uh, to you know grant their imprimatur to and chose not to, it would be a very different situation for them and one that would be far more politically advantageous than what they're about to deal with. Well, and and another uh, to tie in a little bit of what we were talking about with California earlier to 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 this issue, this idea that Republicans are going to embrace the idea that questioning the outcome of every election is a good political strategy for their party is full foolhardy to say nothing of immoral. But even Larry Elder was signaling that he was interviewed right before the the polls open. He said, "Well, we're not sure. You know, who knows what could what kind of meddling could have happened with this election?" and and to be fair, this is something Democrats have done as well, Stacey Abrams being the most obvious example. But this is not good for democracy. It is not good to have people who are running for high office to start undermining the outcome of an election while it's going on. And we saw this with Trump, but we're seeing it trickle down. And that's that's also something that needs to be. To, to his credit, Larry Elder graciously conceded last night. He did, yes, he did. not say that the election, now there was no way for him to claim that it was stolen. It was a 60-40 election. But he did say we must accept defeat graciously. And it's good that somebody said that sentence again in America uh, since uh, it has not been used very much. And it is very important to note that this idea that elections are being stolen um, do- does not have its root in Donald Trump. I mean, we, we, have, we have an entire world that believes that the 2000 election was stolen. We had Paul Krugman refusing to call George W. Bush, the president, and that kind of thing. You know, it's like that's a that's a thing. It's now twenty years old. It was an it was it was, uh, and we now have also Democrats saying that elections that Republicans win going forward will be illegitimate because of evil voting rights restrictions that will make it so hard for minorities to vote that you know that Which, they will be stealing elections. So the stealing just, election thing is now a is now a common tool in both parties. But the can I just note, I've noticed something, and this has been even coming out of the White House lately. They've just started describing the right to vote as sacred, which I think is really interesting. The, the rhetoric around voting rights because of the sort of partisan nature of the, the legislation they're trying, they've been trying to ramp through Congress. To call something sacred should not be done in a, in a mundane way. And this is how we're now having these discussions. And I just, I just put that out there because I've noticed it now more than, on more than one occasion most recently from the White House, from Biden's own mouth. The sacred right to vote. Very sacred. It's so sacred, really. Um, uh, I, I, I find, uh, I want to go back to our, our general theme of uh, crushing morosity. Uh, as we know, we talk about how a, a, a reader, a listener in 2017 wrote us and said, you know, eh, I listen to this podcast. It's just there's so much crushing morosity, and so we sort of adopted this as our as our slogan. I got to say, like the last two or three weeks have really uh, like slammed me in the morosity department. Um, uh, I just wish that there was something good to say about anything that's happening anywhere. Can any? Can you got? I mean, so I because I don't want to be in the position of thinking, you know, the kinds of dark thoughts. That See, I'm, I'm an optimist, but then Norm MacDonald died. So I can't, I can't do it today. I've got like 48 <laughs> more hours of morosity. <laughs> well, that, that's, uh, that's fair enough. Um, Noah, you got anything for me? Uh, I don't know. In a cosmic sense, things aren't really that bad, John. <laughs> I don't tell you. I mean, you turn the lights on, the lights turn on. Okay, fair Built enough. In the faucet, the it's, water. It's in California. Right. 
except in California sometimes, according to generally therefore, yeah. I mean, like in the broadest general sense, I mean, you know, we're this this isn't the dark ages here. Okay, so look, I want to be worried about, but you know, let's take some stock. I want to talk to you guys about Moing Fox. I got to talk to you about Moing Fox, our our, our second, our third sponsor, which delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of bacon for free. I apologize to our kosher listeners for this appeal. Uh, but we do have a large non-kosher audience. Uh, and uh, and uh, I may be inscribed uh, in the Book of Life, regardless of the ads that we do. Uh, and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change when you get each month. Cancel any time. Moink was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Monk. Moink, they guarantee you'll say, oink, oink, I'm just so happy I got moinked. Join the moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now and listen to listeners to the show. We'll get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K-B-O-X.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. So alas, we did miss uh, Abe today. We are crushing to try to finish our issue before before the uh before the onset of yom kippur uh which which uh, is probably not going to happen and we're going to have to stretch it out uh into next week which is a, a sad uh, sad state of affairs for us but we will have uh, much of its uh, dazzling contents online for you to read uh on monday and for our uh more observant jewish uh listeners to uh, get downloaded before sukkot begins on, on monday night so for um Noah, Christine, and the absent Abe. We, again, will not be here tomorrow in observance of Yom Kippur. We'll be back on Friday. Keep the candle burning.